All right, good morning. Let's stand together and worship. This song reminds us that we are the church called of God to worship Him. Let's do just that. And as such, we are called to rejoice in your great name. Lord, we just give you all praise and glory that 
you would be here with us, leading us in this time of worship, your Holy Spirit with us every step of the way, guiding us in our praise, guiding us in our Bible study. And we can't thank you enough, Lord. Help us to give you the praise and glory and honor that you deserve today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, uh, this is a, uh, a connection card, and so uh, please grab one of those and, uh, and fill that out, especially maybe if you're with us the first or second time. We would love to know who you are and um, maybe be able to contact you and tell you a little bit more about the church. You know, the church is all about... Uh, being the body of Christ, and as such, reaching out to a lost and dying world, right? And so that's obviously a huge priority. But another priority is to help people become church members. And, and so sometimes we don't take enough time to ask you about that or tell you about that. But on the back of this card, uh, there is a, a place to mark that says how to join the church. And so uh, we don't talk about that enough, but that is important. And so if you mark that, the pastor will contact you, set up a time to talk with you about what it means to join the church. It's not automatic. Uh, you're not signing on the dotted line. You're just saying, I want to know more. And we'll be faithful to tell you more about that, okay? So please do that. And speaking of the church, we're going to be talking about that in... Um, in verses 23, the last verse of the first chapter of Ephesians. And so let's continue to sing about the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ.
the body of Christ. We cannot take that lightly, amen? Matter of fact, there is no way to take it more seriously than we should. Uh, we have to be totally committed, not only to God, but to one another as the body. I was just telling the orchestra this morning as we were practicing, it, it would be crazy to say, okay, clarinet, I need you to do the bass guitar part. Or, uh, you know, a trumpet, I need you to do the soprano voice part. We all have our different parts to play, amen? And when we all do it together, we are one powerful, immovable force in the world that the Holy Spirit controls, getting the Word of God, getting the gospel out to the nations, amen? And so, let's, uh, we need to remember as we do that, that the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great God Almighty is our head and leader. And let's sing up to him just now. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Oh,
Resurrection Sunday coming. These next words mean so very much. Let's sing them together. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the post of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. Before you are
God Almighty, the Lamb that is worthy. Majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.
be seated. Well, we have been engaged in a study of Ephesians chapter 1. And when you say that, the first thought should be, this is probably the richest, most profound theological section found anywhere in the Word of God. Second to that is, this prayer that we have been studying is absolutely phenomenal. It is designed in such a way that David is not, uh, that Paul is not praying for something new to take place in us. He's actually praying that what we have already been given in Christ, we might know what that is, what's been given to us in the spirit of revelation and the mystery of the will of God and what it means to be saved by grace through faith and that we might continually apply those principles to life. We need to think about who we are in Christ. And Ephesians 1 does that. But not only that, Paul is in a doxological frame of mind. He is exulting in the Lord. Y'all remember we learned that word last week? Can I show you where it's used in the Bible, at least in one place? There are multiple places. Habakkuk will have it. But listen to one verse uh, that actually helps us with Ephesians 1. Chapter 61 of the book of Isaiah, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult. In my God. Why? Similar to Ephesians 1. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Hallelujah. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. To exult means to feel or show triumphant elation or jubilation. I heard a little bit of that in your voices as you sang. A little. Like to hear more. Jubilation, exulting in God. Paul does that, does he not? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Exulting in the Lord. Well, there is no truth and no reality that should cause our souls to exult in God more than the thought of the exalted Christ. Do we really know where he is right now? On his throne. All dominion, all power. And he is present in this church through his awesome, powerful Holy Spirit. So what could possibly bring us a greater sense of triumphant joy than the fact that Jesus Christ conquered death, hell, and the grave? What could bring more of a sense of joyful victory than Jesus' victory over the principalities and powers? What could cause our souls to be thrilled with power more than the power that God himself demonstrated with bringing the Son of God back from the dead? Hallelujah. That's why we, the song, right? Hallelujah. That's why we sing that. So this section in verses 22 and 23, we might call it the power of God in Christ's dominion. What have we learned so far? We've seen powerful displays of the power of 
power of God. Remember what we have in us? Hope of our calling. Incredible inheritance. And then the power of God. Can we stand some of that today? Hope, inheritance, power. Just looking at our world. And then Paul's thoughts run toward the most powerful display. Revealing power. Remember we talked about that. Is anything too powerful, too difficult for God? No. However, when Paul's mind begins to think about power, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. Notice verse 20. And, or that, he worked in Christ. What is it that he worked? Power. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Two simple things this morning building on those powerful dramatic displays. First, we praise the Lord for the power exercised in subjecting all things under Christ's feet. Now, have you ever read that expression, subjection, under his feet? Have you ever thought about that terminology of dominion? Where does that come from? Well, I want to help you understand that better today if possible. And to do so, you've got to go back to the first book of the Bible. And surely you good Southern Baptists know what book that is. It's called the book of the beginning. So if you're confused, just go to the front of your Bible. Start turning a few pages, and lo and behold, you will land in Genesis chapter 1. All right? So listen, what I want you to understand is how man is made in the image of God, and the functional reason that God gives in chapter 1, 26 through 28, regarding what we should be as men and women, or what God's function was to us in our original state. Okay? It's important for us to understand, think about this, subjecting all things under his feet. In order for you to know that, you've got to go here. All right, verse 26, chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female. It's amazing what the Bible teaches us if we read it. He created them, verse 28, and God blessed them. And at this point, he's not going to give you the constitutionality or the makeup of man. What does man look like? What are all the ins and outs of man? We'd like to know that, but that's not what he says. He goes to a functional role. Listen, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it <clears throat> and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, what the Bible actually gives us in regard to the image of God is a functional aspect of how mankind should function in the garden when God created Adam and Eve. So, 
when we talk about the image of God, don't you think it would be wise for us to, to conclude that one of the aspects of being made in the image of God is that we have a functional responsibility of dominion? Because that's what the text says. To be made in the image of God has something to do with the functional aspect. In other words, we're vice regents of our God. Because our God has all dominion. So, when God created the world, he put it under subjection to man. Man was to have dominion over the earth. Now, were we supposed to rule autonomously on our own? No, we were placed here by God. And Adam and Eve were placed there to rule in the garden in the stead of our God. But not autonomously. Do you know the rest of the story? Something happened. Those fish of the sea will bite you. Those animals can kill you. Something that's supposed to be under subjection is not that way anymore. Just try to have a pet rattlesnake in your home and you'll figure that out pretty fast. What God called Adam and Eve to, they soon lost. What God called Adam and Eve to was soon usurped. Okay, Psalm 8. I hear no pages turning, so you must believe that I'm going to find it. And what I'm going to read is the Word of God, all right? Psalm 8. We just sang this song, the majesty and glory of your name. Do you know that one verse in that song says, what is man? That you are mindful of him. Notice what David says in verse 3 of chapter 8 of Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the flesh of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Did you all know that there is an incredible paradox when it comes to man? Y'all figured that out? How is it that one person can be so depraved, but yet have so much dignity at the same time? That's a paradox, is it not? Psalm 8 is an understanding of that paradox. Here is David, and let's say one night he looks up into the Palestinian skies. He's considering the heavens and the handiwork of God, and he thinks, I'm very small. What is man that you are actually mindful that you would even care for man at all? Now, what happens when we see the planet Earth from a distance? Looks like a baseball, but the baseball's colored a little blue. Do you realize that that earth is a speck in God's vast universe? Do you realize that you are a speck on a speck on a speck in that universe? And that's what David saw when he looked up into the skies and he thought about how majestic Our God is. What is man that you may take notice of him? What is man that you would consider him? Now, question. Does David 
ascertain from this that life is meaningless. Because God is so awesome and transcendent, is man meaningless now because God is so wholly other and we are just a speck? Well, absolutely not. He begins to talk about how man has been made with dignity and honor. We were created by God. I want to remind you that evolution has done a terrible disservice to humanity. Because evolution teaches that we are the top of the chain. And we crawled over everybody to get there. And they do see man as the, top, as the height of that evolutionary process. But you've evolved to get there. And mankind actually looks down the evolutionary chain. But I want to remind you of something. If you're ever going to know how you are created and who man is, you've got to look up to your creator. Why do we have abortion on demand in our country? Because we think we're evolutionary species that evolved from a beast or a rat. I don't know how many times that rat bat had to splat before we became mankind. But the fact of the matter is, we're compared to the beast of the field. But you can't understand who you are by looking at the beast of the field. You've got to look at the God of heaven. You've got to look up to know who you are. Don't you realize you can't get an indication of humanity by looking at the beast of the fields. You were made a little lower than the king. You're more like God in his image than you are the beast of the field. That's why euthanasia is sinful disgust in the nostrils of God. That's why to kick anybody to the curb, senior adults or whoever, they'll stand guilty before God as charged. And those who commit abortion. And think it's just, you know why? Because humanity doesn't mean anything to those people. Because they don't think about the God who created us. Now, that was all free. But isn't humanity such an absolute paradox? This text says that we're made in the very image of God. We have dignity that reflects our God. Think about this. We're crowned with glory and honor. Yet within that same person, there's depravity. Anybody watch the news this morning? In 10 minutes of watching Fox News, I saw riots, fires, murder, lies, deception. Oh, I've just described to you Washington, right? And yet at the same time on the news in 10 minutes, I saw people giving their lives to save others. What a paradox. What a paradox. And the reason it's that way is because sin entered this world in Genesis chapter 3. So let's wake up for a moment and think about this. In Psalm 8, we don't see the hiccup, do we? There's nothing whatsoever said about the fall of man. What is said is that God created man in his, in, and crowned him with glory and honor. And then we talk about majesty. But we know that something happened to that rulership and to that dominion. So, when you get to Ephesians 1, aren't you glad I'm there? Right? When you get to Ephesians 1, it has this dominion part. Verse 21 and 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things. You do understand that Paul is quoting Psalm 8. That's what he's doing. But he's not talking about the creation of humanity. He's talking about the Son of God. Okay? So, it certainly highlights the majesty of man as created by God. But it ultimately points to the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this verse, Christ assumes the dominion that God had given to man before the fall. But in a much greater way. Right? Way more dominion than Adam 
could have ever realized. Christ Jesus, the Lord, has that dominion over the universe. Jesus Christ, the Bible calls the last Adam. And folks, aren't you thankful? And we should be with exuberant praise that Jesus Christ more than fixed what Adam messed up. You ought to praise God for that reality. He resurrected victoriously over the devil. He has dominion over the devil. Y'all do realize that. The devil is Christ's devil. He has all dominion. All power. And as you move back over to Ephesians, I want you to drop in another neighborhood before you get there. And that's 1 Corinthians. Take a look at it. I hope you understand. I'm trying to build for you to understand what subjection under his feet actually means. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick up reading in verse 20. Good sermon to push you into spring break. Amen. All right, verse 20. Chapter 15. The great chapter on the resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Praise God. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, he reigns now. Doesn't he? Doesn't the verse say he must reign until? Now you have to see that through the eyes of faith. And if you're not saved by grace through faith, you don't realize that. But one day, all eyes will see that he reigns. But folks, make no mistake about it. He reigns now. And he must reign until all of his enemies are under subjection to him. So the final thing is death, right? It says it in the text. The one who died and lives again on our behalf is the one that through death will destroy once for all the power of death. Now, that's going to be exemplified by the first fruits. Hope you figured this out. Your body's failing you. Every day you live, you're one step closer to death. And... If you were to die before Christ comes back, your body's going to be placed in the ground. Your spirit goes to be with the Lord. But one of these days, in this order, according to that text, even as Jesus came forth as the first fruits, you shall be bodily resurrected. Thus God will destroy death forever. And if you were to be alive and remain at his coming, 1 Thessalonians 4, you shall not go to heaven like you are. You're going to be changed midstream, right? God will change you in the twinkling of an eye and give you a body that is imperishable so that you can go to a heaven where the perishable cannot exist. Right? That's the glory of what Jesus is doing. That's a side note, but I want you to think about the fact that he reigns. And he will abolish death the second time when he comes. Now, flip over to Hebrews. I think this is the last text I'm going to make you turn to. You good with that? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. Let's put this together. I shall start with verse 5. Okay, chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews says, somebody said this. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. 
putting everything in subjection under his feet. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hallelujah. Now, does Ephesians 1.22 make more sense now? Does it? Actually, that dominion could never be restored without Christ. Furthermore, without his life, death, burial, resurrection, exaltation, session, seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. It will be consummated when he returns. Subjects all put under his feet. Here's our confidence. We have a king. And he's not waiting to reign. He reigns now. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our king. You serve an enthroned king now. The Christ that we love and serve, according to Psalm 2, has already been established on his holy hill. Amen. The Christ that we love and serve, the Bible says, the very nations were given to him by the Father. The Christ that we love and serve, the Bible says in Matthew 28, has all authority. All authority is all authority, last time I checked. John Piper says, if you put the authority of all the nations on this side of the scale, and you drop the authority of Christ on this side, it'll go up in the air like chaff. The authority of the Son of God. I want to tell you folks, no matter what you believe about the end time events, because there's a lot of confusion out there, there's people who make a living telling you how it's going to all end up. And they don't know. Eschatology's complicated. It's like guacamole. You spice up your food with it, but you're a fool if that's all you ever eat. Anybody ever make a meal out of guacamole? My wife could. She loves that stuff. But you spice up your life. Look, eschatology is real. But I'm telling you, folks, we ought to be a church that's optimistic. Because the gospel cannot be stopped. Jesus' kingdom cannot be stopped. It will advance. It will accomplish his purpose. You know why? Because he shall reign to all of his enemies are subjected under him. Take it to the bank. It's exactly what the word of God tells us. The gospel and the truth of the gospel will overcome Buddhism. It will overcome Islam. It will overcome pluralism that all roads lead you to heaven. You know why? Because truth always prevails. And we've got it in the word of God. So you take these verses to heart. You realize that all of life belongs to Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty easy for us to read this and say, oh yeah, Jesus has authority over the church. That's a no-brainer. But he also has dominion over your marriage. Hello. He also has dominion over your sports career, young people. Why do you play sports? Well, I need a high school, I need a, college, I need a scholarship. Take the, and we appreciate that as parents if you get one, right? But ultimately, you put that ball in the hoop. I learned this as a 17-year-old with a couple of turned ankles and pride getting knocked down a few times. And there's something more about that ball going in that hoop than just scoring a basket. God's glory is involved with everything you do. His dominion 
is over all things. Parenting. Children. His dominion. Huh. One theologian said it this way. There's not a square centimeter in this entire universe where Jesus doesn't say, mine. He has all authority. All dominion. Our motto when it comes to education ought to be educating for the king. Why, why don't we go to school? Why don't we go to college? Oh, the rubber hits the road here when it says he has all dominion. What Adam and Eve lost, the Son of God restored. He has it all. He has it all. All of life is under his dominion and the lordship of Christ. All right, second, we praise the Lord for the power that made Christ head over the church. Ephesians, listen to the wording. And he put all things under his feet, all things, and gave him as head over all things, wow, to the church. Listen to the prepositions, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. He gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, Christ is the head of everything, right? Is that pretty clear? That is, he exercises authority over everything. But the head metaphor takes a sudden shift when the body is introduced. So although Christ is the head over everything, he is in particular the head of the church, which is his body. Only the church, not all creation, is said to to be his body. This is important for us to think about. Should the church be important to us? Now, I don't apologize for the fact that I have a high ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the ecclesia, which is church in the New Testament, study of the church. I have a high view of the church because Jesus did. He died for his church. And you say, well, that means the invisible church. There ain't no such thing as an invisible church. It's the visible church. Now, corporately gathered today in this building and universal around the world, and even if people are viewing Charles Stanley this morning instead of me, and they profess to know Jesus, then yes, they're part of the universal church. But make no mistake about it, there's only one head of the church. Did you know that if you separate your head from your body, it's not a good thing? As a matter of fact, you are going to decompose right there in your seat. But how often does the church try to function without the head? Man, we get so many peripheral things going on. We think church is about brick and mortar. We need to wake up. Christ is the head of the church. And he's been given to us. Hallelujah. Given, look, all the sovereignty of God exercises for the good of his church. Y'all hearing that? All of the Lord's sovereignty is exercised for the good of his body, the church. Without the head, there's no life. Christ is our ruling head. In Catholic dogma, who's the ruler of the church on earth? That's a problem. Have y'all figured that out? It's a problem to say anybody's head head of the church that is in humanity. Catholicism teaches that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. And as long as he speaks ex cathedra, meaning from his seat, that what he says is what Christ says to the world. Wow. Wow. You see what's going on here? That's why the reformers not only had a theological problem with the Catholic Church, meaning that you got, you got Luther, right? you got to be saved by grace through faith. How can a man be made right with God? Only by justification. Not by indulgences or belonging to the Catholic Church. Or not. So, but there's another problem. Catholicism taught 
that there's one head of the church on earth and that's the Pope. Do you know that people died to say, no way, only Jesus is the head of the church. The Scottish Covenanters was a group of people that lived in the 1600s. And they would not believe that the Pope or would not confess that the Pope was the head of the church. Or in their, in their sense, in the Scot, Scottish Covenanters, they were supposed to say that King James was the head of the church. And they said, not going to happen. You know what happened to those people when they signed that covenant? They were hung on the gallows. They were drowned. They were cut through with the sword. You know why? Because there's only one head of the church and they were willing to die for it. Jesus is the head of the church. And that's what the text says. Do you know this? There's also no denominational hierarchy where they can claim to be the voice of Christ. I don't care for Southern Baptists or Presbyterian or Assembly of God. I'm going to tell you where the voice of Christ is right here. It's not a denomination. It's the Word of God. You're not going to go to heaven because you're a Southern Baptist. You go to heaven because you've been resurrected from the dead by Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Right? You were dead. God made you alive. That's why you're going to heaven, not denominational affiliation. So I want to tell you, folks, let it be heard that if the SBC ever goes away from this book, your pastor won't be SBC. You can be what you want to be. This is the voice of Christ in the world. This is the Word of God. And the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So, just a reminder. Notice these words. He gave him as head over all things to the church. Think about this, folks. Just read the text. In his exalted position as head, he has been given to the church, and he has absolute rule and dominion. Here is the resurrected and enthroned Christ, who is head of all things. In all of his fullness, he has been given to the church. As Christ was given to the church by the Father, the Son of God has given to us his spirit. You see it in verse 23. Which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, if the Son of God is seated at the right hand of the Father with all power and glory, how is it that he's in this church? His fullness dwells here because of his spirit. That he is poured out upon his church. How does that look? Well, we'll get to Ephesians chapter 4 in a couple of years. And here's what we learn there. God has sovereignly given gifts to this body to help us function. He's given his, his grace to live the Christian life. We're going to unpack all of that. But Paul is saying that Jesus Christ as the head of the church is filling this church in a very special way with his spirit, with grace and with gifts. It's literally his fullness. As Lord over all things, he fills all things. But a filling of the church is different. Notice, folks, only the church is his body, right? And he rules the church in a special way. Folks, this means that the church should be dependent on Christ. Amen? I mean, if he's the head and he fills it, who do we need to be dependent upon in the church? Let it be said that there's only one head of the church in heaven and on earth. And it's Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. We are not a building of bricks and mortar. For then we would be consumers. We are not an institution with a product, for thus we will be competitors. And unfortunately, churches do compete. 
which is a sin. We are the body of Christ. We are the fullness of Christ. Thus, we're a community. And what do we want to see? We want to see the boundaries of his dominion continue to spread over the course of this world. Because he's the king. Amen? He's the king. All right. Any agenda in this church that does not have its goal of making Christ known and present in every sphere, in every place, is a biblically faulty agenda. Our church has to be about the king because he's the head. Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. Now in conclusion, I hope you can see that Jesus Christ has been ideally placed to ensure that all of God's sovereignty that is exercised is for the good of his church. That's why we're his body. Dr. D.A. Carson once said, Not a drop of rain can fall outside the orb of Jesus' sovereignty. All your days, all your health, all your illnesses, all your joys, all your victories, all your tears, and your answers to your prayers fall within the sweep of the sovereignty of the one who wears a human face. A thorn-shadowed face. Now, folks, do you understand that all of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ who was crucified on your behalf? Wow. I think it's a huge mistake, having studied Ephesians chapter 1, to simply view God's sovereignty as a mere creedal point that knuckleheads like me like to talk about. Let's just leave that to theological circles and it doesn't have any influence on my life whatsoever. That's a huge mistake. These mysteries we were wrestling with and have wrestled with surround a person who died in your place. You can't just throw these things away as mysteries when it all culminates in the Son of God who died in your place. Are y'all listening? That's where the rubber hits the road. This Lord of glory prophesied in the Old Testament, came to fruition in the New, accomplished your redemption, and is now exalted in the heavens, is the very one who died in your place. Wow, that changes everything, doesn't it? There are mysteries that remain. Uh, No one can read Ephesians chapter 1 and come away and say, wow, I got it all. That's why it took us, I don't know how many sermons to preach it, right? So we would understand. But I don't have any problem accepting the great mysteries of divine sovereignty when I stop and consider that his divine love for sinners, like me, is as great as his divine sovereignty. Do you realize how much Jesus loved you? That he would actually give his life a ransom for many in order to purchase you from the slave market of sin and save your soul. Wow. Remember this, all of this sovereignty is exercised for the church. Think about that. His people who were saved, what a stunning thought. What exaltation should come from us? Exaltation, right? What an incentive to pray in the line with God's purposes for the church. I mean, is this not an incentive for us to say, God, open my eyes. And I know that's true even in here. Because some of you never get it. And why should we not pray for enlightening eyes of the heart when we don't get it? Amen? Should we not pray that God would help us to know the hope of our calling? Help us understand the riches of our inheritance. Help us understand the magnitude of the immeasurable power of God that is limitless in the people of God. Think about this. 
So I think we need to focus on what God has revealed to us and meditate on that. Here's what God has revealed to you clearly. Jesus Christ is the exalted one. He is king. Spend some time meditating on that. If you do that, you won't live a life of complaint. You won't live a life of self-interest. You won't live a life of fatalism. Or you won't use the sovereignty of God as an excuse to sin. You'll actually start worshiping God. Because he's the king. Amen? He's the king. So Christ, the resurrected, triumphant, exalted one, is Lord of all. He's recovered man's lost dominion, and his dominion exceeds that of Adam, more than Adam could have ever imagined. And if you're here today, folks, and you're not saved, I ask you to bow beneath the command that Jesus Christ is king. If you're lost today, he's the king. And I want to remind you of something. He's going to bring all enemies under subjection to his feet. If you're lost, that's even you. But aren't you thankful that God can subdue you with grace? Aren't you? There's nowhere you can go today that he can't find you. He can track you down in a minute. C.S. Lewis once told a college student who was wrestling with his salvation and conviction. uh, C.S. Lewis said, go ahead and give up, brother. You're caught in the web of the Holy Spirit of God. So I'm telling you today, if you sense that conviction that Christ is the king and you desire to give your heart and life and trust totally to Jesus who accomplished your redemption through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, if you're willing to do that today, that's not the devil telling you to do it. That's the king subduing you so that you will believe the gospel. If you've not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, then maybe today will be the day when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign king with all authority, turns you from a rebel to a servant of the Most High God. Is there anything better than to be a servant of the Most High God? A servant of the King. So bow the knee to King Jesus. Embrace Him for all He is. Here's the deal. You can leave this place with all the privileges, all the benefits that belong to the children of God. Do I need to read them again in Ephesians 1? Blessed. with Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How? In Christ. And here's what I will say to believers. Live a life of joyful possession. Because Jesus Christ is yours. You are his. And he's been given to you. How can we ever walk around melancholy? Down in the dumps. When we've been given the king. He's under your possession. Belongs to you. It's worthy of praise. Natalie and I are going to travel to Alabama this afternoon, Lord willing. We're going to take my mother-in-law, pray for us. <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy, right? <clears throat> In Alabama, there are two brothers that live there. Pete and Lamont Ridge. Coach Pete, Nathan used to call him Coach Peaches. He couldn't figure out how all that worked, but he was my weightlifting coach little block building in the back of the yard at his house. For 10 years, uh, he, well, 10 years ago now or more, but for eight years, I lifted weights in coach's weight room, old block building in the back. But his brother's name is Lamont. And I enjoyed listening to Lamont Rich sing more than anybody I knew because he was real. He'd get up there and he'd say, they'd get, he'd get set and he'd grab that microphone and he'd say, let her rip. That's how he started every time. But there's one song 
that he will sing in glory and you will too. And this is a psalm that he actually sang. It goes like this. We will just begin to sing love's sweet story. It's a song that the angels cannot sing. I'm redeemed by the blood of my Savior. And 10,000 years or more, I'll sing his praise. Let me tell you. You may not sing his praise now. But when you get to glory, you will. You will. And 10,000 years will not suffice. He's the king of glory. Our church ought to praise him like he is. How dare any of us come into this building and hear thus saith the Lord preach from this book and not engage with this God. Something's wrong with you if you can't. I'll tell you what the problem is. You're as lost as a ball in high grass. If you can't worship this king preached in this book. Hallelujah. Amen. All right. Anybody need to get saved? Amen. Anybody need to get saved? He is the king. He's not applying for the job. He's not waiting to rule and reign. He reigns today. And the only way you can honor him, really, is to bow your heart and knee to Christ. And accept that plan of redemption that saved your soul. Father, help us. God, help us to worship you. And Lord, I know that we see through lenses dimly. And Lord, I know that. I get it. I know that we can't totally see all of your glory and who you are. But God, you've given us your glory through the Son in the Scriptures. Help us, God. Help us at this church. Help us to cast off mediocrity and complacency and church as usual. Let us get a grip on the God that we belong to. All majesty and glory belong to you. Why would you ever be mindful of creatures like us? It's because of your great love and mercy that you didn't leave us for dead. God, thank you that you didn't leave me for dead. Amen. Brother David? Stand together and sing. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. Don't wait till it's everlastingly too too late. Bow the knee to the King. Amen. You're ever faithful to your promise. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. Here's the gospel we all need. My sin was great, your love was greater. 
What could separate us now? What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. Let's sing one more time. Look, folks, the song you're singing is a song the angels cannot sing. They'll never be redeemed. They have no idea what that is. But they actually like to get up real close, First Peter says, and look into our redemption. Sing it one more time. All right, You're just ever faithful Sing to it. your promise. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great. Your love greater. My sin was great. Your love was greater. Oh, what could separate us now? What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. Well, glory. You know, I've learned some things when I get old-er. When you get 50, there ain't much room for doing anything stupid during spring break. <laughs> I can't water ski anymore. My knees are messed up. I don't want to shoot any basketball. got too many injuries. Yeah, there's not a whole, I'm not going to get in much trouble. Some of you might. I told our senior adult crowd in the first service, don't get in trouble during spring break. They thought that was funny. But I am reminding you to be careful. I know many of you are going to be traveling and going around, and many of people have already gone. Uh, but I think it would be a good time of refreshment for everyone. Joe Biden says you might even eat a hot dog on July 4th if you're good. And I thought in Missouri, I've been eating hot dogs with my folks for a long time. I never stopped eating hot dogs and hanging out with church people. You understand how that's robbed the church? We're a community. We're incomplete apart. Let's trust the Lord. Vaccines can help, but the king rules vaccines. Amen? All right. God bless each one of you. Hope you have a wonderful week. I'm looking for my mask so I don't give you all the coronavirus. I don't have it, though. Amen? Let's dismiss with these words from our, the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Thank you.